Acts chapter 7 this time. This is class content from the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas for December 6, 2020. If you haven't been with us before, we are going through the book of Acts in the New Testament. The historical narrative in Acts concerns those first few years after Jesus was raised and had ascended back to heaven. The apostles of Christ are preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit working through them to confirm that men and women need to hear, believe, and obey the gospel of Christ. It is God's plan of salvation. We are following that narrative as written by Luke, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we are taking one chapter each class, and today we arrive at chapter 7. We always begin with four fast facts. Number one, before the events of chapter 7, Stephen is already at risk. The enemies of the gospel were stirred up against him and others who were bold believers and speakers in Jesus Christ. Number two, Stephen was not guilty of anything. He is preaching the gospel. Number three, the opposition came from the synagogue of the freedmen, composed of men from Cyrene, Cilicia, Asia, and Alexandria. More about that later. Four, the governing body among the Jews in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin Council, wants to hear Stephen's defense. I'm going to read Acts chapter 7. From the English Standard Version, Acts chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners, in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they will come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and rescued him 
out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. I'm at verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. I'm at verse 17, Acts chapter 7. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they quarreled and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, 
and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile before Babylon. Our fathers, I'm at verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directing him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Verse 51, Stephen says to these people, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. Verse 54, Acts 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged 
and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So that's the reading of Acts chapter 7. And I think the first time you read Stephen's speech or sermon here, it may not be clear. In fact, it may seem like he's rambling. However, if you have read the Old Testament, you know exactly what he's talking about. You follow him and you immediately get the relevance of this historical discourse. Stephen is a Jew speaking to Jews, so he must go to the Old Testament and refresh their memory of what God had promised and how people had reacted. Stephen's message is, what God said he would do, as written in the Old Testament, he has done now through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But Stephen says to these people who were unbelievers, you're not listening. You are rejecting God and his son, just as others did. Stephen told these men, there were prophet killers back in your family tree, and you are acting like them in your rebellion against God and his son. Now, when you give a speech or you deliver a sermon, to be effective, you must have an objective, a premise, or a main point. This is it for Stephen. What the Old Testament said God would do, he has done, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But you who have received the law and did not keep it are now guilty of resisting the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are making the same mistake your forefathers made. That's the point. The objective of Stephen's speech or sermon before the high priest and the assembled Sanhedrin. Let's go back now and see if we can follow Stephen's rehearsal of Old Testament history. He goes back about Abraham. The Jews listening to Stephen knew who Abraham was. Stephen reminds them, God called Abraham and promised him a land that his heirs would occupy. Stephen says, the descendants of Abraham would first be sojourners in Egypt. There was Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph, 
and God gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh. And through a series of events, God brought the other descendants of Abraham into Egypt. Then God rescued them from Egypt. So you have Abraham, Joseph, now Moses. Moses took the Jewish people out of Egyptian bondage by the good hand of God. God gave law for the Jewish nation through Moses to guide them, to keep them right and united and lead them to the Savior, Jesus. Stephen says in verse 39, that law was not obeyed. So they were made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before being taken by Joshua into the land God promised to Abraham. Now, Stephen jumps to Solomon, who built a house, the temple. And a very important point is made in Stephen's case to say something about the temple. And that's in chapter 7 we read from verse 45 down to about verse 50. Let's pause here and be sure we get that point. Stephen is not speaking derogatory toward the temple or the tabernacle. The tabernacle they carried first had been constructed according to the pattern God gave. Then the temple also constructed according to the pattern God gave. The issue is not with either of these structures the Jews built and used. The issue was what developed was a misconception that these physical containers somehow contained God in some literal sense. There were Jews, especially in the leadership, who eventually came to reverence the buildings more than God himself. And what evolved in their corrupt thinking was that God was located there that he was contained, that his presence was limited to these sacred boxes. And this wrong thinking brought into fashion gradually led to the idea that the closer you were to those structures, the closer you were to God. And the extreme was as long as you acted religious in these places or close to these places, everything was okay. If you performed the various rituals and traditions and showed up at the appointed times, you were in God's favor, no matter how worldly and ungodly you were in real life, away from these structures. There was a superstitious veneration of places that was a part of, a dimension of the apostasy and sin, and unbelief of the people in the time of Christ. And so Stephen needs to take them back to Isaiah as he covers these misconceptions about the tabernacle and the temple. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Do not my hand make all these things. God is himself the creator. How can the maker of everything be confined within man-made structures? See, 
This was one example of how wrong the Jews went in their thinking. One example of why, when God sent his son Jesus to build a spiritual house, the unbelieving Jews would not accept it, and they were in opposition to Stephen. Now, this may also have future significance for people Stephen is speaking to, because we know when 70 AD came, the present temple built by Herod was destroyed. God came in his power and wrath to shake everything up, to demonstrate that Judaism is not the way of God, Jesus Christ is. I want to note further Stephen's statement in verse 48, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. God didn't live in their monuments. His presence was there when people were honoring him with heart and act, but they needed to honoring him outside these places as well. These Jewish men Stephen was speaking to considered the temple and perhaps their synagogues as their own private places where God was, making God something of a bird in a cage. Their wrong thinking led to many other errors, and it was part of their sinful condition. Jesus is addressing men who are sinners and need the Savior, and he wants them to understand that they are wrong in rejecting Jesus Christ. Stephen says in verse 51, I mean, how clear is this? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as the fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed. Their past disobedience to God was what they were doing in rejecting, in murdering Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And of course, you can see their immature reaction. We read about that in verses 54 through 60. Jesus, the Messiah, has come to replace the temple and fulfill the law and institute a new and living way. Teaching this, I think Stephen knew the reaction would not be positive. They were unwilling to really listen and think and change their hearts and lives. In fact, they were infuriated so much so they ground their teeth at him in contempt. How immature that they snarled at Stephen like wild animals, a man who spoke what the Holy Spirit gave him to say about the Savior coming. Stephen didn't pay much attention to these immature carnal gestures. He was able to see something and someone much higher and better. F.F. F. Bruce said, Stephen has been confessing Christ before man, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. That's Acts chapter 7. I have some takeaways. I want us to consider how Stephen's example shows us what preaching must be in its content. It must direct attention to God. Stephen's sermon is filled with accounts of divine activity. I mean, he tells his audience what God had done 
That was part of their history. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. The God promised to give uh, uh, God promised to give the land to Abraham's offspring. God gave him the covenant of circumcision concerning Joseph. God was with him. God called Moses. God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. Stephen gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God. This is all about God in their history that they needed to recognize. All that history Stephen recounted, the history of these people, God was behind it. Preaching must tell people about God, who God is, what God has done, what he's promised, and what he expects. Preaching must fix attention on God. Further, preaching must highlight why people need to turn to God. It's because of the human problem that is sin. Stephen brings that up in their history, and he brings it right down to these men who rejected the righteous one. He's saying, uh, just as your fathers rejected God and his messengers, that's what you've done to Jesus Christ. Stephen directed them to what might be called the way of salvation. He quoted from Moses, who said concerning Jesus Christ, hear him. Stephen's text here is Deuteronomy 18, 14 to 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Salvation from sin is possible because of Christ, but you must listen to him. The way of salvation requires the activity of faith. And then I want to say, <clears throat> Stephen is an example of the composure of faith. If you want composure, strength under pressure, courageous endurance of suffering, get busy and acquire the faith that the New Testament enables you to have. And then I want to say, finally, we must never think of our church buildings in the way the Jews thought of the tabernacle and temple. We come to buildings or we come to places to learn, to worship, to remember Christ, but then we go out there with God in our lives. We didn't leave him back at those places. We go out into life with God in our lives to perform and practice and illustrate the truth we learned at those places. In this case, the place happens to be YouTube. So that's Acts chapter 7. We'll be in Acts chapter 8 the next time, which will be December the 9th. Thank you for staying with us through this lengthy study. Now let us be safe physically and spiritually. Thank you for being with us.